We're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 84 this morning. The text is printed in your bulletin. Go ahead and open it in your bulletin or a physical Bible if you have one. As I've mentioned, uh, when we're looking at the book of Psalms, remember that this is the hymn book of the Old Testament, so it is written in the form of poetry because they're songs, right? They're, they were sung by the Old Testament people of God and still are currently sung very often in corporate worship. This morning, it is a hymn of praise that we're looking at. So we're praising God for his presence that we get to enter into. Now, unlike every other psalm that I've preached in the last year, this is not a psalm of David. This is a psalm of the sons of Korah. So the Korahites were descendants of Levi through Cahor and Izhar. The family of the Korah. Sorry, this is a hard name to pronounce, and I've said it like 10 times at least this morning, trying to get it right, but it's still difficult. So you're not the only one that has a hard time pronouncing the names when you read your Old Testament. Okay, the family of the Kohorahites were Levites, and they served in the temple. Okay, so these were the people that were the closest to the presence of God in the Old Testament all the time. Now, that doesn't mean that they were specifically priests. Some of them might have been serving in different ways, like singers in the temple or temple gatekeepers. They're listed throughout the Old Testament as serving in different roles in the temple. Okay, so that is who has written this psalm uh, this morning. If you remember, I mentioned this about six months ago, but I think it's good to remember that this psalm has the word selah in it, S-E-L-A-H. I was taught in seminary that this is a musical notation, that we're not to... Uh, it was there for reference for the people who are composing music, and uh, for explaining the text, we don't have any idea what it means except for that. So when I read the text, anytime it's there, I'm going to leave it out. That's how I was taught uh, to read the psalm. So I see it there. I'm not skipping it on accident. I'm skipping it on purpose, just so you know. Okay. So Psalm 84 is where we are this morning. If you would, open up the text with me. We'll be looking at the entire chapter, verses 1 through 12. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we come before your word uh, this morning. Uh, First, grateful that you have given it to us. To hear the pleas of men that have come before us that are inspired by your Holy Spirit. To work in and through your church. And Father, we pray as we look to Psalm 84 this morning that we would see um, how glorious it is that we get to encounter your presence all the time as New Testament believers. 
Father, we pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to what you'd have to say to us this morning. Father, that you would be here in our midst. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So recently, I heard a story of a lady in St. Louis that I want to tell you to begin. It goes like this. In St. Louis, in 1984, an unemployed cleaning woman noticed a few bees buzzing around the attic of her home. Since there were only a few, she made no effort to deal with them. And over the summer, the bees continued to fly in and out of the attic vent while the woman remained unconcerned. She was unaware of the growing city of bees. The whole attic became a hive, and the ceiling of the second floor bedroom finally caved in under the weight of hundreds of pounds of honey and thousands of angry bees. We laugh, but that was probably a terrible day, right? This is a true story. <laughs> While the woman escaped serious injury, she was unable to repair the damage of her accumulated neglect. If you're like me, you know that often in our lives, we neglect things that are very important, right? We neglect our physical health at times. We eat the things that we should not. We do not exercise. Often we neglect our friends and family because we feel like other things are more important. And often these things are objects of neglect because we believe that something else is more important than them. Now we probably don't say that with our words, right? We don't say that my job is more important than my family. We don't say that my desire for a donut we have donuts after the service please stick around for that it's more important than my health we don't say that right with our words but with our actions that's often what our lives show in the same way if you're a believer in the room you know that we often neglect the importance of seeking the presence of the lord think about the lady with the bees right Maybe we're like her, we think it's no big deal, there's just one or two bees coming in and out, you know, we come to church and I do my church thing on Sundays, God saved me and I'm good, right? Or maybe we know that we should be pursuing the Lord, we decide other things are more important, we prioritize other things in front of God. Either way, Psalm 84 this morning reminds us that there's no place more important for us than being in the presence of God, there's no place more lovely nor pl- no place more at home to believers. No other place that brings protection and healing. No other place that will truly bring life to his people than in God's presence. So the theme this morning, this is printed in your bulletin, is in God's presence there is life for God's people. In God's presence there is life for God's people. I want to take us back to last week. If you remember last week, we talked about God's presence. Remember this? that we, rem- we, we talked about how not a single one of us in the room, not a single person on the earth in the history of humanity, except Jesus, could enter into God's presence on our own merit, right? We don't have what it takes to get into God's presence because he is holy. He is without sin, and we are all fallen, as Romans tells us. Yet God authored a plan for God to dwell with us. Remember, he sent his son to dwell with us so that we may enter into his presence. So through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you and I now are clothed in Jesus' righteousness and have access to the presence of God that's unveiled. In the text this morning, we see that there's three Beatitudes. It it says, blessed are those who, blessed are those who, blessed are those who. In verse 4, 
5 and 12. So along with many scholars, we're going to be looking at this text through that lens, through the three Beatitudes, kind of taking us to the context of where we are in the Old Testament. In the context of Psalm 84, it would have been traditional for people to travel to Jerusalem to go to the annual festival in the temple. Okay, So some people, like I mentioned the Korahites, they lived near the temple. They, they wouldn't have to travel a long way, but they would have worked there. They're there all the time. But so, some people would have to travel in. And often people would. This is the majority of Israel. Okay? Now, other people would need to travel in, but they couldn't. Maybe they had a physical inability to travel, or they were in a different country and they couldn't come. So in this uh, text this morning, the three added Beatitudes that we're looking at are, are going to break the psalm into three different groups of people that are speaking. Okay? So our outline today, this is in your bulletin as well. First, we're going to look at those who dwell in the temple. This is firsthand the Korahites, sons of Korah. Verses 1 through 4. Secondly, we're going to look at those who are on their way to the temple. Verses 5 through 7. And then lastly, those are, who are far away from the temple. Verses 8 through 12. Okay, before we get into the actual text, I want you to... to be aware of something that you and I will tend to do. It's going to be tempting for us when we study a text like this, when we hear these groups of people, to put ourselves in these groups, to say, which one of these is an analogy for my own life? And the truth is, none of them are, right? Because this is a different era in redemptive history, that you and I do not live in this time where we had to travel to the temple to be in God's presence, right? So it's not going to do justice for the text for us to try to plop us into the text per se. Instead, we're going to look for themes that we see in each of these people and then apply those themes to us. Okay, instead of trying to plop us in Psalm 84 directly, we're going to do it by taking the themes that we see in all three of the groups of people. Okay, so first, let's look at verses 1 through 4. This is those who dwell in the temple. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. So remember, these are the words, the very first four verses of those who live right around the temple, that are working in the temple. These are the, their, their very vocation is to serve in the temple where the presence of the Lord is. So they would have been in the dwelling place of the Lord more often than any other people in all of Israel. The courts of the Lord are the temple where the presence of the Lord resides. So when this psalmist speaks of longing for the courts, for the dwelling place of God, he's not saying, I long to go to work. Okay, because this is their vocation. He's not saying that. He's not saying, I long to go to this one place. He's saying, I long for God himself. I long for God's presence. This person that lives and works so close to the presence of the Lord each day still says, I long to be there when I'm not there. He's speaking of longing for God himself. And he sings for joy as his soul is constantly satisfied in God alone. One theologian says of God's presence, His presence transforms adversity into prosperity, affliction into freedom, and death into life. Spurgeon goes on, another theologian says, The purpose of God's presence with his people is to save sinners and comfort saints. So the psalmist realizes at the core of his very being, there is a longing for the presence of the Lord. He goes on, transitions from the people 
and to birds, which is really interesting. In verses 3 and 4, he says this, Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. So the psalmist then transitions to start speaking about the, ner- the, the birds who have made nests around the temple. Maybe they're in the crevices of the walls or they're in the trees that are in the courts of the temple. But he's saying that even the birds, the birds who are near to the Lord have found their home. One theologian says that these birds are the symbol of the life, freedom, and joy of those who dwell close to God. It's interesting that he first speaks of Levites and then of these birds. We think of the Levites in the Old Testament as being very important. They were the one who could, some of the high priests of the Levites could enter into the presence of the, God, of the Lord on the Holy of Holies once a year, right? But then secondly, he moves to these birds, especially these two birds. Because sparrows in the Old Testament are shown throughout the scripture as being worthless, as being without any value at all. Secondly, the swallows are birds who travel from place to place. They, f- they have no home. They're restless. So these birds, who are symbols of worthlessness and restlessness, find their worth and rest in the presence of God. If these birds find their worth and rest in God's presence, how much more will you and me, who bear the very image of God the Creator, find our rest in him. Verse 4, he goes on, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. So we can visualize, right, the Levites all singing the joyous praise to the Lord, and in the background we hear the chirping of the birds and know that they are finding their very worth in God himself. So Yahweh, the creator and sustainer of all things, is being worshipped by the people constantly who are closest to him. You would think that these people time after time, would maybe get a little bit like, it would become mundane. It would be like, oh yeah, of course we're going to the presence of the Lord. We work there. But no, in the text we say that, that, that they long more and more to be with Him. Okay, so that's the people who are dwelling in the temple. Secondly, those who are on their way to the temple. Verses 5 through 7. It says this, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Remember I mentioned that not all people would have been living in Jerusalem. Actually, the majority would not have been. So they would have been traveling in once a year to this festival at the temple. And it says this group was traveling to the highway uh, to Zion. And they were given strength by these words. Many scholars believe that this part of the psalm was actually written by the sons of Korah for the people who are traveling so they would have strength to endure the rough terrain that they were entering to come to the temple. That, that many people would not have come if it were not for the encouragement that they found in Psalm 84. Verse 6, it speaks of the Valley of Baca. It's also known as the Valley of Tears. Because the difficulty of the terrain that the people had to come into Jerusalem through. So the festival that they're traveling to was held in the seventh month of the year. So this is mid-September to mid-October. And during this time of the year, rainfall would have been very sparse in this region. So the Lord would, as the text tell us, comfort his people with rain. You know, we live in the desert. 
when it's a blistering hot day above 100 and the rain clouds come in and it cools down the whole land. This is what he's doing for them. And while there are accounts, we can see this happening in history where the rains of relief have come upon the people during their travel. I think the text is less speaking of the rain itself and more of the God who brings comfort to his people during their duress. He's saying, you're going through a difficulty in seeking the Lord's presence, but he will strengthen you in the time you need it. You're blessed when your strength is in the Lord. He gives you the strength to believe, the strength to obey, and the strength to suffer. Verse 7 tells us they go from strength to strength, that God is providing strength in their weakness, bringing comfort in their trouble. In their physical strain, they feel weak, but God provides the strength. So for, for those who are on their way to the temple, their confidence and their drive comes from their knowledge of the Lord's presence is where there is true hope. In the Lord's presence, there is strength. In the Lord's presence, there is comfort. In the Lord's presence, this is where you'll find your rest. You will find your hope, your very worth. So as these people walk through the very difficult terrain, they move forward by the Lord's strength to be the Lord in the Lord's presence because it's where they belong. I think part of this is that we need to see that God's people belong in God's presence. Because he has set his people apart to live with him. So when we seek strength and comfort and worth and anything else, we will always be let down. But each of, us, each of these travelers appears before God in Zion, the text tells us, where their true longings are fulfilled. When they seek God for their rest, for their worth, that is when their longings are truly fulfilled. I think I've mentioned this before, but in 2000, I, I played basketball uh, in high school, so I was not a long-distance runner by any means. We had 30 seconds to run suicides. You know, that was like, the, that was the most I ever ran. So later in life, Allison was a cross-country runner, so later in life, out of high school, we were married for a couple years, and, and Allison's like, we should start running. We should like, you know, one of these neglect things, right? Like I w- probably neglecting my physical health, and my wife was probably encouraging me not to do that. So she's like, we should start running together, and I was really like, not, not all for it. So in 2012, we started running together. She signed us up for a half marathon. as our first race uh, in Disneyland. So it was going to be fun, right? Like how, how uh, competitive can it be at Disneyland? But anyway, so I, I, was traveling, I was training in 2012, and I had never, so if you don't know, a half marathon is 13.1 r- miles, right? So I had never ran past 8.5 miles straight before getting to the race. I was a little worried about that, which I probably should have been. Um, but so when I got to the race, the first few miles went fine, like you're running through Disneyland and it's really cool, but then you get outside of Disneyland after like three miles, and you, they don't tell you this, like when you're signing up and they pay this huge price, you go out in the streets outside, it's like in California, I mean it's, it's nice weather, but still it's not in Disneyland for a while. So the first few miles went fine, but I got outside the park and I realized that the pace, our pace started getting slower and slower and slower. So I got to mile marker eight or nine and, that mark, and I was just completely drained, right? And at that moment, my main motivation to keep running was to not get swept by the golf carts in the back, right? It's like the golf carts that are keeping the back of the line moving forward, saying like, you are too slow to race, so you need to go faster, right? That was my main motivation, was to to not be in the very back. 
So if you know anything about running, that's not the motivation of a true runner, right? Like most runners, Chris Stewart over here, he's in our life group. We talk about this stuff sometimes. He's a runner, right? He'll post on Facebook like, this is my personal best for this marathon. And it's like half of the time I ran the actual half marathon in. Like it's ridiculous, right? So like when we have true motivation, it looks a lot different than we have like a false motivation just to get through, right? So our motivations, they tell us a lot about ourselves, especially when we go through difficult situations in life. Sometimes we don't even have the motivation to continue. I just got picked up by the golf cart and I'm out of here, right? I'm going to Disneyland instead. This is often how it is with our walk with the Lord, right? When, there's, when, when, it's diff, when we're going through difficult times, we often just want to get on the golf cart and leave, say, I'm done. So we have to look at our motivation, If we're motivated to walk with Jesus for the wrong reasons, it will lead to us falling away over and over again. Maybe for you, your motivation is that you've always gone to church. It's cultural for you. You come because the church has always been a part of your routine. The people here you know and you love. Maybe your motivation is that you come because your spouse or your parents or your friend or they want you to. So you're motivated less about what goes on here and more about the person that's sitting next to you. Maybe you feel like coming to church is a place for good advice. I need a pick-me-up. I need encouragement in my life. The thing is, all of these things in themselves have some good, if not a lot of good in them. But when that's our main motivation to walk with the Lord, it's going to burn us out. When our desire to know God is foundationally motivated by anything outside of God himself— we will burn out from our walk with the Lord. But if we're motivated to walk with Jesus in the, for the right reason, to know him deeper and deeper, that's when that's a, a long-lasting walk with Jesus. So when God is at the center of your desire in your Christian walk, difficulty won't tank you. When hardship sweeps, sweeps in, this foundation will have you running towards Jesus instead of away from him. So I think you can ask yourself this question. You can say, why am I here today? Why am I motivated today to be walking with Jesus? Maybe you're not walking with Jesus. You have no motivation. That's one category. But I would say, why are you motivated in life at all? What is the point to all of this? But if you are following Jesus, say, what is your motivation here I think an easy way to think about it, to kind of categorize it, is my motivation centered upon me or is my motivation centered upon God? If my motivation is centered upon me, you would say things like, I have always gone to church, had Bible studies in my life. I have always wanted to make my spouse, my parents, my friends happy. I want to feel better about myself or my life. Or... The other side is if your motivation is centered upon God, it will look something like God's presence is where my life is. That is where I belong. The thing is, when God is at the center, it doesn't take you completely out of the picture, right? He actually satisfies you. It does become about you in a certain sense. It's just putting you in the correct place, in the presence of your Creator, We enjoy Him. We are satisfied in Him. And we are given life and worth in Him. But it has to be about Him and not about us. It's very tempting to do that. Okay, let's look at the last point here. This is verses 8 through 12. We're going to be looking at those who are far away from the temple. 
O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who are walking uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So this last group of people, they can't travel to the temple, right? They're people who trust in God from far away, but they cannot enter into the festival. So I want to start by noticing the beatitude that we're focusing on in verse 12. It says, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So I think the biggest mistake we can take when we're talking in this, in this vein in, in uh, Psalm 84 is, is to put too high of a priority on the place that people are traveling to, neglecting who they're there to see. In other words, these three groups of people, all three of them were desiring to be in the presence of the Lord. So in this beatitude, in this last third of the psalm, we see there is one thing that makes a man blessed. What is that? Trusting in God. Trusting in God at all times, in all circumstances. Spurgeon says this, that we're to trust his mercy for our pardon, his power for our protection, his wisdom for our guidance, his faithfulness for our preservation, his all-sufficiency for our supply. That we must trust God with our very lives because he is the one who is holding them. So the reason the people who could not go to the temple, this is the reason they could say, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, that I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. If they long to be in God's presence, going to far, far as to say is that just one day in your presence is better than a thousand anywhere else simply because God is our protector and our shield. He is the Son who brings light to the darkness. He is the one who brings life to His people. The thing is, when we look at Psalm 84 from the New Testament perspective, right, the people of God, they long to be in the presence of God. Some were blessed to live and, and work all around the, the presence of God near the temple. Others had to travel in to join in the presence of the Lord during this time. There's others... Far-off believers who could not make the journey, but they still trusted in Him. All these people longed for a day where they could dwell with the Lord all day long. This is the day in which God's people live through Jesus. And the presence of the Lord is no longer simply found in one specific place in the temple in Jerusalem, but each and every believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them each minute of every day. While the people of God long for the presence of God to be more accessible, God sent His Son to do that very thing. Jesus, the very presence of God Himself, entered the world. He took on flesh. The Westminster Catechism, question 22, is the ones I had, one of the ones I had to memorize for ordination. It's really helpful. Sometimes they're really wordy. This one's really helpful. It said, How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. God's own Son took on flesh. 
to pay the penalty of our sin. And once he was murdered, once he had come to the people to save them and they murdered him, he rose again and beat sin and death forever. And when, the, when his disciples and the people around him thought that the presence of God was gone again, Christ returns to over 500 people, proving that he has beat death. Then, at Pentecost, he sends the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, to dwell in all of God's people. Now, through the work of Jesus, you and me get to dwell with God each and every day unto eternity through the Holy Spirit residing in us. I think for us, in the West, in a really comfortable area, it's easier for us to neglect this truth, right? Because I would bet that there's not a single person in this room that does not have a Bible in their house. Even think about the era of the people who were, came before the printing press, right? And how sparse God's Word would have been. Now, today, I probably have 20 Bibles in my house. I can open them anytime I want. The Holy Spirit is dwelling with me that he opens my eyes to more of God anytime I open the Scripture. But we often neglect it because it's really easy. So for us in Psalm 84, I want to encourage us that let's turn to him, right? Because these people, he's encouraging people who had to travel. This is on foot, like, like going to Dallas on foot, to be in God's presence, and you and me can walk into the other room and open God's word, and we often neglect it because it's so easy, right? So for you and me, let us trust the Lord. Let us seek his presence all the time because Jesus has given us a way to dwell with God each and every day. Let us trust in God, laying our life down at his feet each day, each hour. One theologian says this as we close. If we want rest, let us clasp God as ours. If we desire a home warm, safe, and sheltered from every wind that blows and inaccessible to enemies, let us, like the swallows, nestle under the eaves of the temple. Let us take God for our very hope. Let us seek God's presence this morning, trusting that we will find our life in Him alone. Let us pray together. Father, we are grateful that you have made your presence known to us first in the temple, second through Jesus, and now in each and every believer through the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray uh, that even though opening our Bibles, walking with you can feel mundane at times, Father, we pray that it would not, that we would seek after you and love you, cherish you, because of all you have given for us and how much you love us, Lord, that we would respond by walking and loving you in turn. Father, we pray as we come to the table now that you would be here with us, reminding us that our salvation did not come without a cost, but that you sent your son to break his body, to die, to to have the wrath poured out upon him, that we may live with you. Father, we thank you for this time you've given us this morning. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.